This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Just an hour ago, Governor Josh Green began a news conference to address the latest on schools and housing for those affected by the Maui wildfires. Green just returned from a United Nations summit where he spoke of the challenges of climate change and recovering from this latest natural disaster. Our fire is the worst for U.S. fatalities, and while we are still close to 100, it is in contrast to the death toll in Libya due to flooding, which is about 4,000. Here's Green talking about his U.N. message. My message to the world was first one of thanks for their support because the world has been attentive to our needs and they've been kind to us. I also shared with them that we are no longer anticipating the impacts of severe weather. We're now experiencing them. And in our case, when a hurricane fused with a a wildfire, it created a tragic crisis. And other parts of the world are dealing with their versions of these crises, including major floods, all sorts of disasters. But The heightened weather that we experience is just one piece of the evidence. We've had six fire emergencies this last month. In the 50 years from 1953 to 2003, we had six. So people understood what I was saying. They are feeling it too. They certainly are feeling it across the United States because the wildfires in Canada are affecting the Northeast and the wildfires in the, you know, the body of the country in the West are also very fierce. So It's happening, and people know now that they're going to have to work to mitigate the effects of these storms and fires and do better. We have to do better to prevent catastrophe. You know, we just severely underestimated the threat with the wildfires and the invasive grasses, and I still look very nervously at Diamond Head and and the hills, you know, where I live, the vegetation is just so dry. Uh, And then I think about Libya, and not one but two dams failed, and... I just worry about our ability to deal with those types of effects of of climate change. Yes, it's very real. You can be sure that a large part of what our legislature focuses on next year and what my team focuses on for the next three plus years is going to be ways to mitigate the risk. We are going to have to have much more advanced ways to get rid of those very thick uh, grasses. We have to have a plan to move some of the pole wires underground. I've spoken with the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, about that. It would cost about $2 billion to do the most vulnerable poles in Hawaii, and I will pursue that as as an ask. We have to have more warnings that we understand. That includes use of the sirens in a way that people can grasp and can uh, utilize outside of the typical tsunami and, and, uh, and hurricane warnings. There's just so many things to do. And we're not the first to have this experience, but we're the latest. So I hope that people got that message when I was speaking globally, but more important, locally, everyone should know that this is going to be our priority in the coming year. So I don't want people to be afraid. I want them to be confident that we will bring resources to every victim and their family and to Lahaina, but also look at the whole state and have plans that will make us at least somewhat safer. We had a housing crisis before this disaster, and this has just only made it worse. You know, and then it was a setback uh, for your administration with uh, Nani Maduro stepping down. How is this all going to work going forward? Have you made a decision? Will you bring in an, another housing czar, if you will, or will HHA help to pick up the slack? Well, I appreciate the question. Let me be very clear, it wasn't a setback for my administration. It was a setback for the state of Hawaii and for civilized communication. When someone is bullied and terrorized and then forced to quit because their family members are being threatened and their businesses are being threatened, that's a sign that we've allowed the public discourse to drift to a very dangerous place. So that's a setback for all of us. I'll construct the committee now so that there's no single target so people can't use social media violence against any one individual. They're welcome to come for me because I don't care. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to put anyone else in that situation where they can be targeted. So we'll do it by committee. We'll lean on everyone who wants to help. As you saw, I amended the emergency proclamation to bring down the heat because unfortunately people ended up finding a strange uh, relationship uh, bedfellows, if you will, with uh, some individuals who are threatening us. Others were still supporting uh, the demolition of that important working group. And we hadn't even done a single uh, approval yet, I don't believe, aside from public housing, which everybody supported. Yet they were in bed together to criticize and demonize good people. So I'm going to rise above that, but we can't govern that way. We can't be that way. And we're not that way. Most people are not. Most people are full of aloha in our state, but there are 
is a, a small group of individuals that will do anything to disrupt. And in this case, they took out a very, very thoughtful and compassionate person in Nani Medeiros, who, believe me, she will rise again. I already know she's highly sought after to do good work. But goodness gracious, that was bad. I'm going to keep working on housing because the reason I was elected, and it was a lot of people supported us, was because they knew that I'm on the right track to try to get us some housing. So we'll do that. We'll work on homelessness. We'll keep doing things on health care and so on as we rebuild Lahaina. But I'm not going to be intimidated. And honestly, I hope that everyone will speak up against that kind of thing because it was really not Hawaii. Well, you know, our hearts just break for the people who lost homes. And among them, one of your former colleagues, former Senator Roz Baker, and now Senator Angus McKelvey as well. I mean, they just got out in the nick of time. I know Senator Senator Baker, you know, has a uh, a place to stay, but only for a few months. And then she's looking desperately for long-term housing. And, and, and that's just one person. Yes. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because, yes, September 29th marks six weeks that the system has been in place to give people essentially unquestioned access to hotel rooms and housing. We will continue to extend that as we move people into long-term rentals, basically. We'll be converting a lot of short-term rentals, Airbnbs, and so on into uh, 18-month-long rentals. And even then, we may extend more with support from, of course, FEMA and the American Red Cross and us, just we, the people of Hawaii. Plus, for instance, I'm going to continue to speak nationally, whether it's in New York or at football games or whatever. I'm going to speak up and get people to donate to Hawaii because people love Hawaii and they want to support our people. But they'll be able to get long-term housing that way. It's going to be a process. October will be bumpy because some people will move from one hotel to another. Others will get into an Airbnb or a a longer-term rental. But you know how hard it is to build housing, to your earlier question. And as long as people are very skittish about building any housing for working people, which is where we are right now, there's a lot of NIMBY out there. As long as we're there, it's going to be very hard to take care of our local people. And so that's going to be a big fight. Uh, that I'm happy to take up. But for Roz and for those other people, we're just going to keep making sure they get housing. And if there if there's any question, if someone gets bounced from a hotel or doesn't have a place, they should call my office um, or call me, and we will make sure that we fight for them. So there's lots of work ahead. That was Governor Josh Green, who talked to us earlier this morning. We will continue our conversation after a short break. New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Margaret Wrinkle, author of The Comfort of Crows. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the natural world that exists in our own backyards. Sunday morning at 11. Foodland's Give Aloha program makes it easy to support HPR. Shop at Foodland, Sack and Save, or Foodland Farms this month and designate Hawaii Public Radio at checkout. Your donation helps this nonprofit public radio station sustain and grow to serve our statewide community. For more info, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash givealoha. Mahalo for your support. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Let's get back to our conversation with Governor Josh Green, who says he's still holding on to the October 8th date to welcome back visitors to the Valley Isle. You talked about October. I mean, that was when you had announced that you would welcome visitors back. And I know it's a sensitive issue. Yes, that's totally true. What I would say is this. We have total commitment to people and their healing. The opening on October 8th, which represents two months from the day of the fire, is necessary. It's a lesson we learned during COVID that if we were ambiguous about what our plans were, everything failed. It will be a small opening, honestly. There won't be that many people coming, but you have to start somewhere. And if you want to have resources in November and December so that we can care for our kids, so that we can have food for people, so that we just can support our community that's been so vulnerable and lost so much, we have to do that. It would be a terrible mistake to delay dates like that because 
you could lose five or six months and that will make for complete carnage. Other people will go out of business. They won't be able to employ the, the wonderful people that lost their jobs in Lahaina. I'm doing this specifically because I know we have to care for each other. And unlike COVID, where there were billions and billions, in fact, over a trillion dollars of support, we are an isolated, faraway community. We've been very well supported by the feds and the president's been wonderful, but that won't last. And our state will have to recover. The people otherwise all across the state will feel the ripple effect of a downturned economy. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars that we don't have for schools or for hospitals. We have to do it. I know there are some people out there who have no experience at this, and they say we shouldn't open. Unfortunately, they're wrong. You know, unfortunately, they're not considering the broader picture, which is we have to really all be in this together and support one another. If someone is not ready, of course, because they're still suffering trauma, I don't expect them to go back to work. If they're not ready to welcome a visitor, that's totally okay. But others have to work. And so that's why as you know, as the state's chief executive, I have to actually look out for all of us. Uh, I still will make sure that people are very, very compassionate and sensitive if they happen to be near people who have been displaced. To be frank, I've been speaking nationally about this and telling them, embrace someone, love someone here. When you come, know that you should spend extra resource to help us heal and, rec- excuse me, and recover. So that's, that's the message, and I know these are tough decisions having been, like I said, through COVID, I saw what you actually have to do. So uh, I hope people understand. I know that most people do. About 85% of the people we talked to were ready to open actually before October 8th. And I respect the heck out of the other 15% who aren't quite ready. But I have little choice than to care for all of our state. The hospitality industry, I know, is treading carefully, you know, with the marketing plan that they're looking at rolling out. Have you had been in any discussions uh, with the industry about that messaging? You know, it's going to be about Malama Hawaii and Malama Maui, which is where we've been, which is help and heal and support. And I think that that will resonate. Truth be told, people get it. They know that they know that a terrible thing happened here in the island. And because a lot of us are speaking out directly, they also know that more than ever, what they do for Hawaii will actually help heal you know, the wound. So, I, I mean, I think a lot is made of these kind of discussions, but truth be told, people just want to know that they are okay to travel here because they've probably planned something for years. People don't usually just come on a whim. So they want to know that it's safe and that they can be welcomed. And sure, there will be moments. There's going to be a few people, because there are people out there, as we know, through the social media in uh, world that just will say anything. But, you know, if someone's in conflict with a traveler or a visitor and it doesn't reflect well on us in Hawaii, only people that's going to hurt are kids who rely on their parents to bring home money for their Christmas time or for their books, for their pencils for school. So, I mean, I know most people will not be like that. But imagine this. Imagine if someone was doing a protest against reopening. Who are they really protesting? They're protesting the recovery of those who have decided they have to work. They're ready to work. So I hope that doesn't happen. It's okay. You know, people should express themselves however they feel best. But we really have to care for each other. And that means caring for each other's wounds and getting people housing and eventually building permanent houses and also making sure that they can care for their family. And is there anything you want to say about this flap that emerged over at the Water Commission, uh, you know, uh, with the reassignment of Kaleo Manuel? Not really. I support everyone. You know, I mean, everyone has a role and have great respect for Kaleo. I have great respect for Don. I have great respect for Nani Maderos. I have a lot less respect for people who attacked her. And these are very difficult situations. And, and I'm trying to provide, believe it or not, a fair amount of protection for all the people that get attacked and all the people that were a part of the government both before the fire and after the fire. You'd be surprised at the decisions I have to make to make sure that people aren't sued, vilified, or hung and quartered in social media. And so I'm trying to bring people together. A lot of people are not are not affording my people the same generosity, but that's okay. That's up to them. They have to decide whether or not they can understand that not every position is perfect for a person in the, in the moment. And I have to, again, find common ground with as many people as possible. And a lot of my decisions are based on that. So I wish everyone well. I will find places for people to work if they want to work in government, if they want to contribute. And again, I have great respect for both Kaleo and Nani, although they shifted under very different circumstances. Did you try to get Kaleo removed? I definitely wouldn't talk about any personal information between him and his job. It's really important that uh, that is just between him and his boss. But I'll tell you this, I wouldn't keep people in my administration if I didn't feel good about them. And 
these positions, whether it's that position or a position over at Shipti, these are huge responsibilities and very important and good ways to care for the people of Hawaii and the land. So people don't let their emotions get involved. They'll see that these are good things. These are good opportunities for people. So we're at a place where there's still 97 fatalities. 80 people have been identified now, so only 17 are unidentified, which is very few. I will comment, you know, 78% of our people from the pre-disaster area got housing, 78% in hotels and Airbnbs, you know what the normal percentage is? Seven. Usually about 7% of people find housing. We were at 78. And the reentry into people's land is going to start on the 25th, which is just around the corner. That's Monday. So there's a lot of good things to share and people pulled together. But it's going to, like I said, when we do roll out this full housing program, it's going to have stops and starts and it's not going to be totally smooth because I'll be asking people who who normally rent their, their places out as Airbnbs to rent them out to people who are victims, who are struggling and suffering. And I'm going to humbly ask them to all, you know, consider getting paid a very, very good rent, but more like rent that would be long-term rentals rather than the night-to-night Airbnb vacation rental. This could change the way we look at short-term rentals. Honestly, and I, I say this quite directly to those who are listening today, strongly consider a gradual transition of your property over to long-term rentals for local people at wherever you are. Short-term rentals really took the wind out of our housing sales over the last two decades. It's not a good program for our local people. It, it hurts us. It's going to be difficult because you can see a lot of people lined up. Even though everyone knows we need housing, they're still trying to block me from doing it. But if we transitioned over time, and I'll find tax breaks and incentives and you name it to help people do that, we would benefit very greatly as a state. And you can expect that to be part of what I work on the next three years. That was Governor Josh Green, who we chatted with earlier this morning before a 10 a.m. news conference to address uh, the status of plans for housing and schooling to help Maui recover from the devastating wildfires. We just heard from the governor on the flap over water rights on Maui that ratcheted up during a water commission meeting earlier this week. HPR's Kuve Hirishi covered that marathon meeting. Twelve hours of deliberation and testimony. She joins us now. Good morning. It was a very long Tuesday for the hordes of testifiers who came out to the monthly meeting of the State Commission on Water Resource Management. More than 300 pages of testimony were submitted and nearly all of it urging the commission uh, to restore the water code, reinstate in-stream flow standards, and advance the water management area designation for Lahaina. Um, This, you know, these issues were put to rest. Uh, Commissioner Chair, Commission uh, Chairperson Don Chang uh, saying that, you know, the state water code was uh, reinstated. So the in-stream flow standards and the water management area designation are moving forward and in place. Uh, But, uh, you know, this response in response to Governor Green's comments blaming communities who have been fighting to restore stream flow for the fires, uh, tar farmers like Honokoha's Keith Kiahi had this to say. I see a little bit weather, a little bit deep, but we went through in Lahaina and now this is not helping, of course. And all of a sudden, some days after the fire, we hear this narrative come out and uh, paint this picture of Kaleo. And Carlo Farmer, like me, my brother, you know, really, and all these guys, as public enemy number one all of a sudden. So now I'm going to tug it on my back like I want criminal. And that would hurt. I'm not public enemy number one. We set that straight. Nothing wrong with being Hawaiian, right? Every right for being. All of a sudden, always blame the Hawaiian. Like, we the problem. We never do nothing. What's wrong with just being one Hawaiian? I like grow my Carlo. Why I got to be the criminal? So for those who might not uh, recall those statements, it was uh, in uh, about a week after the fire, uh, the in-stream flow standards, so the amount of water in the streams uh, were uh, said or asserted to have uh, not been enough to fight those fires. That was something that uh, commission staff provided some clarity on, saying that that uh, was not related, but still that rhetoric was, um, you know, going over social media, in mainstream media as well. 
Uh, so much of the testimony heard on Tuesday dealt with those issues, but also with uh, the uh, deputy, Khalil Manuel, uh, Commission Water Deputy, who was uh, reassigned within the Department of Land and Natural Resources. Uh, Chang sort of reassured the crowds that, uh, you know, the commission is moving ahead with the Lahaina Water Management Area designation. Uh, but she wanted to clarify that the views of color farmers was not uh, that were uh, shared by Green were not uh, her own. There's never been CRM's intention or directives to in any way blame the color farmers for the fire. But that has never been a narrative that we at Seaworm have ever supported. The suspension of 174C, the suspension of the IIFS, the threat of the West Maui designation being withdrawn created a tremendous amount of tension, contention, fear, anxiety. My determination to redeploy Kaleo was not a unilateral decision. That was a request I had received from the Attorney General's office based upon an investigation. So that was the sort of the only unresolved issue was the redeployment of Deputy Manuel. But uh, I wanted to kind of go back. Sorry about that. The one chapter 174C, the state water code, is what uh, Chang was referring to. And that has already uh, been restored, as we mentioned, in the seventh emergency proclamation on September 9th. And this rescinds that suspension of stream flow standards and returns water to the streams. But uh, some in Lahaina, some Lahaina residents who flew into Honolulu uh, for the commission's meeting Tuesday said uh, compliance and enforcement are lacking and that streams are still dry. Uh, commission Chair Chang uh, said she sent a letter to West Maui Land Company underscoring the restoration of these in-stream flow standards. In West Maui, she also directed commission staff to investigate the private water uh, company for for non-compliance. Uh, but looking at the future of water in a West Maui, uh, science or USGS sort of projections show increased uh, indications of drought and conditions of um, less or reduced rainfall, all of these conditions have uh, created that water management area designation. So right now the commission is processing upwards of a hundred permit requests to use water from Lahaina and this way they get a better understanding of who's using the water and how much and for what purposes. Uh, but getting back to Deputy Manuel Chang did disclose that he has been reassigned to the State Historic Preservation Division. Um, but throughout that 12-hour meeting, she repeatedly described the removal as a personnel matter and would not sort of go past that. Uh, there was overwhelming support for Manuel's reinstatement, and not only from members of the Native Hawaiian community or taro farmers, but from attorneys. Uh, Manuel often would disagree with uh, Huelo Native and Earth Justice Attorney Mahesh Cleveland shares his uh, mana'o. The difference with him was the ability to talk to him about it, you know, and I wanted to, you know, just share something that was told to me by one of my clients and personal heroes, Uncle Walter Ritty. He said, you know, before we could come in here and do this Water Commission stuff and work with Kaleo and Aaron, um, we, we would have to go jail to protect our aina. And finally now, with the commission being the way it is, commission staff being the way it is, we can do what we need to do for the aina without going jail. So I just wanna leave the question out there. What do you think happens when the community loses trust? They're not gonna feel so comfortable being able to get what they need without going jail. Um, we don't want any of our communities to go jail. We want the state to do its right for the aina. So that that uh, you could hear the frustration in his voice, but that idea of having to rebuild or regain the public trust, uh, mostly for the Water Commission, but also for Commission Chair uh, Don Chang and, and Governor Josh Green is going to be an uphill battle coming out of this meeting. The next meeting, monthly meeting of the commission will be on Maui. Uh, in October, and uh, they are expecting a huge turnout. 
Uh, Chang said she understands that something uh, will need to be done, decision made before the commission meets when, uh, with respect uh, to uh, Deputy Manuel, but she said she doesn't know at this time what that decision is going to be. You know, when we heard from the governor, you know, he expressed concern about the threats against uh, Nani Maderos. Do you know yeah. if there were threats against uh, Kaleo just because of the misinformation that's going out there? I do know on, yes, on social media uh, there was, and in um, some media coverage on, comments on media coverage on the continent that there were death threats and uh, similar uh, situations, but uh, this seemed, this was brought up at the testimony, uh, during testimony the other day, and Chair Chang seemed um, startled by that as if she, it wasn't on her radar. So the idea of, of death threats um, or, or some sort of protection of manual being a reason wasn't entirely clear, and mm. it's that just that lack of transparency that I'm hearing from a lot of those that weren't testifying on Tuesday that that was is sort of at the center of this mistrust right now yeah yeah well we don't want uh, anyone making any threats against anybody Uh, and you know I think folks just uh, are concerned about uh, obviously the ability to fight these wildfires and if there's water to be had that the fire department can use great you know and if that wasn't the case in this situation you know you do want to get it straight going forward because it's not like we're not going to have any fires in the future exactly <laughs> and the the conditions i mentioned earlier uh was something that the commission is looking at they were uh, actually proposing two alternate sources of water one the line uh, water reclamation facility improvements to that and also improvements to the honokoha water tunnel that could increase the availability of water in west maui yeah, you want to keep everybody safe. All right. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. We've been hearing from HPR's Kuvehi Horeishi. You can read her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story today about a new hire at Hawaiian Electric Company. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today with news about this latest pick for a chief financial officer in light of the disastrous Maui wildfires. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this new hire. Well, his name is uh, Scott DeGhetto. He is uh, an investment banker. Um, He has expertise in uh, mergers, acquisitions, restructuring, bankruptcy, uh, the sort of thing that a company might need to go through if it's facing financial difficulties. And so this hire, I mean, uh, was there an opening so that he could jump in, or do they, how, do, how does this work? Well, this there was not an opening. Um, the CFO position was supposed to be taken over, or was dealt with, or what by, I'm sorry, the CFO was Paul Ito. Mr. Ito is moving over to Hawaiian Electric uh, Company, the utility company. Um, He's going to be CFO there, replacing someone who's retiring. And Mr. DeGhetto is going to step in for uh, 15 uh, months or so as this, um, as the CEO. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, as the CFO. Okay, so so this new guy with uh, Hawaiian, Le- Hawaiian Electric Industries, then, I mean, he was obviously, well, not obviously, but it, it looks like he was tapped uh, because of what happened in California with the fires back there. Well, possibly. We don't know that Hawaiian Electric Industries, the parent of Hawaiian Electric um, and American Savings Bank, is going to uh, have to go into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is what happened in California. But you're exactly right. It's the same sort of thing that uh, happened in California um, is facing Hawaiian Electric. A a number of lawsuits. There's a big question, again, maybe two dozen lawsuits at this point, and they keep piling up. Big question is uh, what sort of liability could the company face because of this? If it does face a huge liability, it could be billions of dollars. And the question is how does the company deal with that? 
Yeah, I mean, it is uh, something to consider, you know, because this uh, company has a long-storied history here in the islands. Right. It's been here over 100 years, and so it's one of the oldest companies, very much a part of the business establishment here, super important. It's a, our electric monopoly, so it's our, our big company. And uh, what happens with the company is going to affect a lot of people. There are 470,000 customers statewide. One of the questions could be, um, how do does Hawaiian Electric Industries or its Maui Electric subsidiary pay for all the uh, rebuilding of infrastructure that's going to have to go on, not to mention uh, the damages that it could have to pay if it's found liable for these fires. Right. And, of course, uh, customers want to know, what does that mean to our rates? Yeah, and we don't know yet. Again, one of the outstanding questions for the company is how much insurance does it have, liability insurance and insurance for um, its uh, distribution systems. They were supposed, the Public Utilities Commission asked for an answer to that, uh, supposed to be due on Monday. The company asked for more time, so we're waiting to find out. But, you know, that could end up affecting rates that, customers, at least on Maui, if not statewide, have to pay. Yeah, and and we've seen all these uh, lawsuits uh, that have been filed against the company, you know, raising questions about, you know, should they have put more more money here instead of, you know, looking at green energy? Uh, you know, do they need to underground these power lines? Well, that's exactly right. And remember that all that, you know, other other stuff besides looking at renewable energy was going to cost money. They, they had requested the company had asked for one hundred and ninety million dollars for these kinds of upgrades, which would in, have included mitigating against fire uh, wildfire risk. And that was going at its usual glacial pace through the Public Utilities Commission. Yeah. And so this new hire, uh, how long is his contract? It's uh, for one, a little bit over one year. He starts October 1st, and it's through uh, 2024. Uh, Mr. Ito is scheduled to go back as CFO um, after that, and Mr. Degetto will stay on until April uh, in an advisory role. Yeah, interesting. Well, that will be something to watch. Um, but uh, thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, read his story at civilbeat.org. past success with building and nurturing relationships with donors, we've got the job opportunity for you. HPR is hiring for a major and planned giving manager. This position will be the main point of contact for HPR's major donors and will help the station grow our donor base. Learn more about this position at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. More than 100 million people in America have medical debt. Some of those trying to help have to resort to debt-buying companies. We understand that what we do is a Band-Aid on a broken system. What we do is, you know, we're helping people today. How does the debt-buying industry work? Who wins and who loses? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Megan Kamale Kakimoto is of Japanese-Hawaiian descent. She's the author of Every Drop is a Man's Nightmare, a short story collection that explores Native Hawaiian myth, love, and family. She's a finalist for the Keene Prize for Literature. Uh, she's also received fellowships from the Rona Jaffe Foundation, Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Missioner Center for Writers. She talked to the conversation Stephanie Hahn about writing through a feminist lens. To me, it's a very clear focus. You're a feminist writer, and that is very obvious. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I am so grateful for that reading. I set out with these stories 
writing only women protagonists at bear, you know, different places in their life, different stages of their life. I was just noticing all these threads, these common threads that were popping up in in different stories that sort of kept asserting themselves to me and my interest early on before I even thought of this as a collection, but just as I was writing stories was being able to write into a woman character in her body, what it looks like, what it what it feels like to be in a body and to possess a body in a world that's not always welcoming or accommodating of your body. And I think writing these women felt like an opportunity to be very fearless, to sort of track them as they live their lives, don't always make the right choices. They don't have to do the right thing or, you know, behave a certain way um, in accordance to what society expects of them or wants of them. I think there is a joy in representing women and the full range of their humanity and the moments when they chose, when women in these stories kind of chose kindness and compassion for each other and for their bodies and their world were were just as enjoyable for me to write as, you know, the moments when they were a little messy and, and made the wrong choice. And as a writer and as a reader, I really gravitate towards stories that offer all characters, but especially the women characters, the space to be as human as they need to be. So that was, I think, a commitment for me in writing each of these stories. You speak to a local audience. Mm -hmm. You speak to a woman of Hawaiian descent experience, but you're also half Japanese. Mm -hmm. And so how does this figure into your construction of womanhood? Is there a difference? What's the same? A lot of it is citing a matrilineal narrative, the knowledge that comes from your matriarchal line. But is there anything about womanhood that also comes potentially from your patriarchal line? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, like you mentioned, my my Japanese side is on my father's side, and I, I am incredibly close to that side of my family as well. I think a lot of what I've encountered or wrestled with in some ways has been a pressure or a stress to sort of make sure that I'm not telling quiet stories or not being too quiet, that I'm able to tell these stories in the truest way that I can and that I know how to. I think that there's elements of growing up half Japanese and sort of with my Japanese family that is a little on the quieter side, on the private side. One of the most freeing things about writing is that you can write into whatever character you want to write into um, and have there's a safety there, I think, in being able to tell a story. I guess for zooming out a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a people pleaser in my daily life pretty significantly. But when I'm writing a story, my character does not need to be a people pleaser and they can be really sort of feisty or, um, you know, they can not give a damn about what they are or how they how they behave with other characters. And and I think there's just a lot of freedom in, in being able to take comfort in the page that way and tell those sorts of stories, um, especially when you know, you consider maybe the context of an ex- a, a cultural expectation of being a little more on the private or quiet or um, meeker side. Right now, there's a lot of discussion about indigenous women's knowledge in particular and how they're leading a discussion about the environment. What elements of women's knowledge and wisdom do you think are important that people should pay attention to? What is it, if we're in leadership positions, might potentially be different for our world? I guess I can only speak to my own like personal experience as being a woman. I think that I see a lot of really sort of attending to compassion in my own community of, of women friends and women family members. I think leading with compassion has been 
you know, kind of it has been very important to me in my own life. And also having an eye for empathy. I feel like I get both when I am in community with my women friends. And I feel like that's very top of mind for a lot of women in my life and and for me as well. And I think that those are two really two things that would make the whole world better, but especially in in politics today and in so much that's going on right now, just lending that eye toward compassion and having sort of an awareness of other people. And, you know, when I say empathy, I don't at all mean to, you know, make excuses for anyone else or anyone's bad behavior. I think it's more just taking the opportunity to regard where that person is coming from, what experiences they're bringing to their own, um, you know, opinion or their own actions. And I guess just, yeah, having, having that be top of mind. What was your biggest struggle with writing that you feel that you overcame while writing this book as a writer, you know, sort of a writerly piece of advice that you might give to aspiring writers out there? I don't even know if I've overcome it yet, but I think it's a process of constantly overcoming, but not being silenced by the fear of, you know, there's so much fear in in writing and putting any piece of writing out into the world. But I think an indigenous Hawaiian story collection that has a feminist bent, you know, I think that there's a lot of fear in how these stories will be received, even down to the title, you know, every drop is a man's nightmare. I've had someone ask me if I worried about alienating male readers from the title. And I mean, my honest answer is no. (laughs) Um, But I think just at the same time, there is just a lot of, there's always a lot of fear. And I had a lot of, a lot of anxiety in terms of, in particular, writing these cultural narratives, because there is an incredible amount of pressure from I think anyone in a marginalized experience to do right by their community because there's so few of us getting published, there's so few of us having our work championed and there's that pressure to get things right and to you know do right by, by the Hawaiian community. I am constantly thinking about that and also trying very hard not to worry about that because at the end of the day, there's only I can only write into my own experience, um, and there is no single monolithic Hawaiian cultural experience that I can ever accurately represent. So I think um, trying to pay attention to my own experiences and to have the confidence in in putting these stories out and really try not to worry about how they're going to be received because ultimately. I needed to write the stories, and that has been done. <laughs> Again, it is also very much a, a learning, ongoing learning process for me. Thank you so much for coming by. Really appreciate it. I think that any listener out there would really enjoy this book. It's a fantastic collection. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Stephanie. Thanks. That was author Megan Kamale Kakimoto talking to HBR's Stephanie Hahn. Uh, her first book, Every Drop is a Man's Nightmare, is a collection of short stories, a finalist for the Keen Prize for Literature. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to the family of Joseph Rothstein, Dietrich Insurance Company, and Legacy of Life Hawaii. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org.
tomorrow marks a week since 21-year-old fire controlman third class Robert Stout was laid to rest in Cottonwood Cemetery in Northern California. He was until recently one of the unknown sailors killed during the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He was born in Oklahoma and he would die on the USS Oklahoma, the first battleship to be hit by a Japanese torpedo. Thanks to DNA technology, after uh, more than eight decades, he was identified. Stout had enlisted in the Navy just two years before the attack. We talked to his nephew, retired police chief Kevin Jones, yesterday. He says his family was deeply grateful for the outpouring of respect for his great uncle during the long journey home to California. Out of that 400-plus figure, they only identified 36. And so in 2015... The government determined that they were going to exhume all of those people who were not identified, and they were listed as unknowns, in the National Cemetery in Hawaii. And so what they did, they tried to go by, first of all, was dental, and then they pulled DNA from the bodies themselves. So what we've been told is my great uncle was identified by his dental records. And so then they say, okay, this is, you know, FC3 Stout. Then we're going to look down at where his family tree goes. And so uh, his mother uh, was deceased, his sister, my nana was deceased. And they, in order to show DNA, they had to go through the paternal side, which would have been my mother and I. We were the only living people who they could identify DNA from. So after you send DNA to Department of Navy, we were notified. It wasn't a quick process. It was a roughly two years later, maybe more. And we knew that, you know, my great uncle was uh, assigned to the Oklahoma. We knew that he had died in Pearl Harbor. But we just, there was never confirmation about, you know, where and when and the details. And obviously did not have any type of remains or any uh, graveside services other than mass graveside services for what they called all the unknowns. When we were notified by the Department of Navy, you know, we have confirmation that the remains that we have that came off the USS Oklahoma was Robert Stout. Then there's a process of communicating with the Navy over where you want to have Mr. Stout buried at. And so everyone uh, has an opportunity to be laid to rest at the National Cemetery in Washington, D.C. My mom and I felt that it would be more fitting that he be put to rest with uh, my great-grandmother, which is my mother's grandmother, which is Robert Stout's mother, who is buried in the Cottonwood Cemetery. We were notified that his remains would be flown into the Sacramento Uh, California International Airport. At that point, uh, his remains in a casket were met by a Navy Honor Guard. It was taken off the plane by the Navy Honor Guard. It was loaded into the hearse by a Navy Honor Guard. And I just want to say this uh, about Southwest. The most class act I think I've ever seen, even, you know, I've been to, unfortunately, many funerals regarding uh, other brothers and sisters and law enforcement. I've seen a lot of just impressive things. You know, Southwest stops what they're doing. The pilot and the co-pilot come off the plane. Everyone, the passengers are on the plane. And I looked over, and there's probably 40 or 50 Southwest employees have their hand over their heart, and they're watching this casket be put into a transport purse. And uh, then, of course, there was a procession from Sacramento to Reading, and uh, then obviously had the memorial on uh, last Friday. So that portion of it was just very impressive. It was heartfelt. We saw people on the plane uh, inside the windows who were all taking photos or video. And so, uh, and you can hear them clapping when it was all done. It was a beautiful event and we're happy to have uh, my great uncle uh, back and resting with my great grandmother. You just think after all these years, It's nice to have him home, and it's just amazing what we can do now with DNA. But now, you know, you have him back with you. Yeah. You know, the the lab that made the ID, you know, has been in the news recently because, you know, we're grappling with lots of uh, unknown fatals in a recent wildfire that we Uh, had here. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And they're urging people to step up with DNA uh, just so they can help, you know, in the process of identifying the remains they have retrieved. So, you know, I, I think maybe it's a comfort to know that after many decades, you have your loved one home. 
Yeah, it, and it does. It gives my mom, you know, she gives her some peace, you know, if you will, with just having, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, he's oh, one of the very last relatives my mother has. She did have a cousin that the Navy was kind enough to fly out from Missouri, and uh, but unfortunately, due to the nature of her relation, they couldn't use her DNA as a match. Okay. But it was great to see her and my mom. And my mom has some medical conditions that uh, prevent her from uh, remembering a whole lot of stuff. But you know, she stood there. She was presented with flag, and she knew what was going on. whose granduncle Robert Stout was buried in a Northern California cemetery with military honors last week Friday. He was one of a handful of the more than 400 unknowns who was finally identified by the Defense POW MIA Planning Agency located here at Pearl Harbor. It is the same agency that is helping with the identification of the remains from the recent Lahaina wildfire that has killed close to 100 people. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, making waves in the discus world. Give us some feedback. Got questions? Call or talk back line at 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>